Hi, uh, this is Dr. Randy Bach. I'm here with an episode uh, of vital information for you. I'm here with uh, Yaakov uh, Ophir um, from Israel, and he's been studying ADHD and uh, its basis and the, the way forward. Um, Dr. can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm very excited to be here on your show. Um, so I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm a research associate at the Technion, Israel Institute of Technology, but I'm also affiliated with the University of Cambridge. And, and my main, my, my primary field of research is not actually, is, is actually not ADHD. It's, it's, a it's a technology and, and psychology and, and more specifically, how can we harness a technological advancement such as a, AI to, um, to, um, um, predict and detect suicide uh, risk on time and, and then uh, offer treatment. So this is my main, my main field. But um, once my, my first born child was born, my, my, my oldest child was born, it was uh, 11 years ago. And I, I suddenly encountered, uh, I, I was forced to learn this uh, subject of ADHD. Of course, I knew about it. I'm a clinical psychologist. I knew about it, but I knew uh, the basics. And uh, but when when my my uh, firstborn son um, was diagnosed at the age of four and a half, it was really amazing. And with a strong recommendation to start a, a, a medical treatment, uh, so I, I I had to to dive in into the literature and to to learn about it. So uh, what, what, what I discovered is, is, in my opinion, mind-blowing, and I'm happy to share your uh, viewers uh, with my findings. I'd like that. You know, I'm just going to preface. Um, my, my sons are, are men now. They're uh, uh, one's in his 30s, the other's in his 20s. And when the older one, a similar situation, um, they wanted to put him on medication. And uh, we, we made some accommodations. You know, he had trouble kind of getting his thoughts onto paper. Um, I was dra dragon dictation existed at the time and uh, we had him dictating his thoughts and he'd be out running or, or walking and dictating into a you know recorder or whatever. We didn't have smartphones back then um, and transcribe his stuff. And then he would work those into his papers and he did fine as time went on. Um, but the diagnosis is always hovering and the, everyone wanted to be on medication, the behavioral things, so forth. Um, but there are other ways of accommodating oftentimes. And uh, I think you're going to get into some of that. So I'm not going to, uh, you know, steal your thunder here. No, but I'm actually, it's very, uh, it's uh, refreshing to talk to someone who is, who really knows, the, knows this uh, subject from um, so closely and, uh, and you have experience. Uh, uh, so I would love to hear your thoughts about it. So, uh, so anyway, um, so I, about three, a little bit, uh, a little more than three years ago, I I published my first article on this uh, topic, and it was a Hebrew article. And from time to time, I I, I publish um, articles that are not academics, just for uh, uh, alongside my academic endeavors. I I I, uh, I like to um, to appear on, on, on radio shows and TV, and uh, this is my my way to. Uh, and to give back to the community and to translate um, a complex material to um, to simple um, um, terms, and uh, and usually I do it in Hebrew. It's much easier for me. So so I I was publishing this article on ADHD and 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 I wasn't prepared to what happened next. This article was published in a in a place called Haaretz. It's a 
Mm-hmm. It's a big uh, newspaper in Israel, but not the, the biggest. New, the New York Times of Israel. Yeah, something like that. And and um, and suddenly, um, the whole country read it. It was it was really uh, inspiring and scary at the same time. And my my phone started to. Um, <laughs> I, I should say that the title of the article was the same as the title of my book. This is my book here. Uh, you can see it over here and here. There go, right in, put it in front of your face. It's easier. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yes. So, so you can see the ADHD is not an illness and Ritalin is not a cure. That was the title also of the article in Hebrew. And, um, and my, my phone uh, didn't stop ringing. I, I was asked by all the um, uh, media here in Israel to, um, to, to come and, uh, to co- uh, and to explain about about this article and this article became one of the most read article and that articles in that in that year that was years ago and um but i am along with the excitement there was a, there were also many attacks and um and and after two weeks of of, of, the, of this of this buzz and also uh, attacks i i i caved i i went back to the closet and and started to uh, do my homework and started to do a uh, research like scientific research without any funding because they didn't have no one wanted to to um, to give me funding for this uh, for this journey and so I, d- I did my own research and and I started doing um uh, scientific criticism something that I became uh, very uh, good at um, I I was forced I, I it wasn't my as I said before it wasn't my primary field of research um and then I I received a complaint, an official complaint by the Ministry of, of Health here in Israel. And I was scared because my license, I'm a clinical psychologist and my license was, was uh, at risk. And so this complaint essentially forced me to, to start writing a, a more academic papers and then, um, um, and then this book that I just showed you. So in a way, I'm happy of, of this uh, of this journey and of the attacks that I absorbed. It. But uh, as you can imagine, it wasn't it wasn't easy. It was even scary because I'm I'm not a politician. I'm not I'm not that uh, I'm not that kind of a guy. <laughs> so yeah, that's the, this is the story. So that's an amazing thing. Um, so so let's go to the next phase. Um, you have the concept, and I assume you had been working with your own son for some say more interpersonal accommodations rather than throwing a medication. I'm just gonna preface, you know, I, I went to medical school when di- dinosaurs walked the earth, actually not that long ago. I graduated in the 1980s. Um, and I was awake for most of medical school, I tell people. Um, I actually had to be, I was paid. <laughs> I, I did audio visual. So I, I was actually paid to be awake uh, during the lecture so I can prove it. Anyway, um, we were always told uh, amphetamines, there was no medical cause uh, to write them. Uh, because they've been debunked as a medication for um, for weight loss and whatnot, because they were addictive. They have tachyphylaxis, uh, which basically tachy means fast, phylaxis means uh, I don't know accommodation. And so, so you you know, people who my wife drinks coffee every day. I never drink coffee. Uh, if each of us have has a cup of coffee on a given day, I will get a bolt. Uh, I get a jolt, a bolt, um, and I'll I'll get you know the effect of it because I'm basically a, a naive or virgin to caffeine, and she's not. So she doesn't really get much zing out of her coffee, and I do. So tachyphylaxis is this accommodation uh, principle, which we're all familiar with, with the addictive medications, and amphetamines qualify 
and so do opioids, um, where you keep needing more and more to get them. So it always seemed inimical to me once this kind of came in phase uh, or it popularized uh, that, uh, you know, Ritalin, uh, Adderall, amphetamines were the medication of choice for this thing called ADHD. At the time, I think it was just called ADD. Um, so it seemed odd to me. So um, that's kind of my my predilection and whatnot. There was, I'm just going to preface, there was an article uh, you're probably familiar with in, in 2012 in the New York Times, in, in our New York Times, uh, the New York Times, we call it, um, by uh, a, a doctor, Alan Sroof. I think he's also a clinical psychologist. S-R-O-U-F-E, Alan Sroof. He's retired, long retired now. And he wrote an article in 2012 called Ritalin Gone Wrong. Um, and I, I found this really, you know, stunning article. And it, it goes over, I think, some of the things you, you're going to be talking about as well. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have gotten anywhere. Uh, the number of medication prescriptions for uh, amphetamines, Ritalin, you know, uh, uh, I guess um, Adderall and whatnot, um, have, have skyrocketed and they continue to. Um, so anyway, so let's let's kind of... What happened between the article and then the further research? What 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 did you discover along the way? Okay, so let's start from the beginning, and maybe I'll show something in, in my uh, in my presentation. Can can you share the viewers? In my... Absolutely. Oops, there we go. So, so this is my this is my son, my my aunt. It's not a it's not a good resolution. It's just there, and and this is a, a keynote. Um, a, this is a keynote lecture by uh, Professor Russell Barkley. Russell Barkley is uh, is the big name in ADHD and uh, conduct disorders. And uh, and if we have time, yeah, this is a one minute video. We can we can hear how how Barkley, which is, who is the uh, can be seen the, the, as the representative of the scientific consensus, how how the scientific consensus views uh, how how it, how it view the. Um, the um, the basic of ADHD, and then I explain what is the problem with that. Can we? So um, can we? Can we? Can I show it? Yes, please go ahead. Okay. So I want you to understand that you have a brain. The back part of it is where you learn. The front part is where you do. Knowledge performance, knowing, doing, and ADHD splits them apart. I don't care what you know, you won't use it. You can be the brightest kid in the world. Not going to matter. So you got a real problem on your hands because you can know stuff and you won't do stuff. All of this in ADHD is due to neurogenetic deficits, and that means that medication is absolutely justifiable. After all, if you have a neurogenetic disorder, then neurogenetic therapies have a role to play in your disorder, and they do. 80% of people with ADHD will be on medication at some point in their life, and good thing. It's the most effective thing we have. There are other things we can do, but that's the most effective. It means that ADHD is the diabetes of psychiatry. It's a chronic disorder that must be managed every day to prevent the secondary harms it's going to cause. But there is no cure for this disorder. Now, about one in six people might outgrow it, maybe as many as one in three, not sure yet. But the vast majority, two thirds, are gonna to continue to be ADHD in adulthood. And they need to view ADHD as diabetes of the brain. It's a chronic disorder. Okay, so so imagine what happened when when my my my, my child was was uh, given this diagnosis. It's a, I I I knew that it's a chronic disorder. It's a chronic brain deficit and a neurogenetic uh, deficit that uh, has to be uh, managed, not even cured. Managed 
with uh, with uh, this powerful medications, psychiatric medications, uh, amphetamines or methamphetamines or methylphenidine, uh, every day because it's like a diabetes, and and the hidden message, and he's not, he will not. I don't think he will say it out, out loud. But but the hidden message is also that there is a biochemical uh, imbalance in the brain. Yeah, biochemical imbalance uh, theory that no psychiatrist will ever say it uh, upfront, but or every parent will tell you that this is what they understood from their doctor that the, the child has a biochemical imbalance. And what can you do? The only thing you can do is to give him these medications so to 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 uh, bring back the balance. Of course, this is a myth, but but this is what this is the the um, the foundations that the, the way that the scientific consensus sees um, ADHD. But oh, oh, and and can you can you put the, mm-hmm. the okay? So. Uh, and in, in, in 2002, Barclay and, and Associates, they published a scientific, scientific consensus statement. And in this statement, they say very um, harsh things. They, sh- they say that whoever disagrees, first of all, they say that there is, um, uh, in fact, there is no such disagreement. They, they say that everybody agrees about the existence of this, uh, of this um, um, entity that is called ADHD. And... And whoever, uh, and if if other people, uh, if some people, some doctors or physicians or scientists, they they uh, disagree with it, then the media, the media should help. The media can help, and um, not to give them, not to uh, purveying the propaganda of some social critics and fringe doctors, right? right. Fringe doctors uh, whose political agenda would have you and the public believe that there is no real disorder here, and and listen to that. This is yeah, the, the where, best where have I heard this before? To publish stories that ADHD is a fictitious disorder or merely a conflict between today's Huckleberry Finns and their caregivers is tantamount to declaring the Earth flat, the laws of gravity uh, debatable, and the periodic table in chemistry a fraud. So this is how I was treated when I first came out with my my, with my position about ADHD. And, but this goes all the way back to 2002. And... Um, and and this is how scientific consensus relate to, to people who disagree. Yeah. And the truth is, yeah. I'm going to interrupt for one second because I found this slide, which I think is relevant to your situation in a sense. Uh, this was about some other similar thing where, where you know, I, my, for me, there's, there's two definitions of science. Science is the body of knowledge, okay? But science mm-hmm. is also the scientific process by which things have to be weighed and, and compared all the time. So it's a, yeah. it's a, constant, it's a constant iterative process of weighing so that the science, you know, pre-Newtonian science, I think was pretty good, and but Newtonian science was even better. And even and Newton science stayed for a long time, but there's always gonna be adjustments. You can't say that Newton settled everything, even though almost everything we do is Newtonian. I mean, everything, you know, on our scale is Newtonian, but there, there are aspects of it that don't accord to its reality. So you always have to keep a, literally a critical eye uh, in order to have this, this gauge properly. So I'm gonna- Exactly, gonna... And, and the essence of science is discourse. Exactly and, right, and and also, um, if you think of Karl Popper, we in science we always look for the refutation. We look for the what Karl Popper uh, called the black swan, the the single right. instance that does not fit the theory. 
this is what we do in science. We do not only um, confirm what we already know. We try to we try to um, to re to re refute it, to right. to challenge it. Exactly. Right. Then, so yes. le left and right here, we have science versus pseudoscience. And if if your if your words and your uh, theories are scientific, they will withstand this stress testing. You know, you don't want to get in an airplane that's never been tested. You don't want to get in a car that's never been driven. You want people to test it out and have it run through the pace, make sure it's safe. So the science, real science is ask a question, do research, blah, 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 do the experiments. If, you're, if your procedure is working, you know, you have to go back and troubleshoot. This has an iterative process, a cycle. Pseudoscience is do not dare or want to ask questions. So that's kind of part one of, of Dr. Barkley over there. Yeah. And then if, if, if you know, you discard data that doesn't align with your model, and then you have to trust the experts. The experts are the experts because they're the experts and you're not. And so they have an advantage over you and they'll be able to, to kind of dictate who comes in, in and out of this box. If you're not allowed in, then you probably, you know, shouldn't be there in the first place and nobody else. Anyway, so I apologize for the interjection. I'm going to show one other slide, uh, which I um, uh, collected here. This is the article I was mentioning earlier, Riddle and Gone Wrong. This is 2012, New York Times. And he has, uh, I'm going to just put these up. People can, you know, cut and uh, stop and pause this later on if they want to read this. So I'm not going to uh, spend too much time on it. But his article is very much, it's its open, even though New York Times is not. This article is open because it's so old, you can go find it and read it. But he makes some excellent um, uh, points there, and I'm going to leave it there for, for, for now. Um, anyway, so, um, well, well, let's get back to your thoughts. So, um, first of all, let's, let, me, let me say that the New York Times did a really great job back then. And I think at around the time that you... Uh, uh, maybe a little later also giving um um Ellen Schwartz the journalist giving him a, a platform to publish uh, uh, several articles uh, very interesting articles powerful articles in my opinion and and, and then Ellen Schwartz also published uh, his book um I'm not sure I think it, it is called the riddle in nation or something like that but uh but and he he interviews a uh, Dr. Keith Connors, Dr. Keith Connors already passed away, but Dr. Keith Connors is one of the, of the founders of ADHD. Sometimes he, he's called the father of ADHD. And Dr. Dr. Keith Connors, uh, um, according to, um, to this journalist, to Alan Schwartz, um, um, you know what, let me, let me keep, um, I have it in, on my uh, presentation and, and really his, his words are amazing and I want to share it with you. Uh, so, so um, after the, the scientific consensus was published in, in 2002, um, and there was a, a, my question was: uh, Is there really no such disagreement? And I found that, of course, there were there were uh, there was the disagreement. And two two um, two years later, a psychiatric British psychiatrist uh, Sami Timimi and three thirty three uh, supporters, the co-endorsers, published a critic of this scientific consensus, and they said what we said what we what what you and I said a minute ago. They said not only it is is it completely counter the spirit and practice of science to cease questioning the validity of ADHD? There is an ethical and moral, moral responsibility to do so. And, and, and since then, there were uh, many books and articles that were published on this topic, and, 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 and many of them were, critic, were, were criticizing uh, the, the, uh, what we call the biomedical uh, scientific consensus about ADHD. In my book, I collected uh, many, many uh, articles and books on this topic that that uh, that 
first of all, just to show that there is a disagreement, you don't mm -hmm. have to agree with me. Don't don't believe the expert. I, now I'm the expert, so don't believe me. Just know that there is a disagreement, and you can and I and I bring and I bring forth the material, and you can you can judge it for yourself. Um, so so um, so at this point, um, if you want, we can start diving in and starting to yes, present yes, yes. my yes. side or, or our side. It's not my. Well, no, it's, it's it's yeah. I think it's probably our, but it's yours. So, so yeah, let, let's hear the argument. You're you you have the stand, or you're okay. going to convince the jury. <laughs> yes. So let's let's try that. So, in in psychology and psychiatry, we have an interesting problem that we we know that there are psychopathologies, that there are uh, disorders, but um, who um, who decides? How do we know that a certain behavior, human behavior? Is a disorder? Is an illness? How do we know? What What are the rules in in other uh, fields of medicine? In medicine, so sometimes we have um, uh, objective tests. We have a physiological tests. We have brain images. We have all kinds of uh, of objective uh, measures that we can rely on. And um, and here you might stop me and say, Yaakov, don't. Also, also in medicine, we have a lot of problems. And 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 I'll tell you that I'm I'm not familiar with. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar enough to know, but but I assume that in, in medicine it's it's a little bit different than in psychiatry and psychology. But in, in our case, um, the the um, the premise of the of the decision is very hard because this is this I took it from the DSM, the Diagnosis Statistical Manual of the of a psychiatric disorders. This is our Bible, right? Mm -hmm. And this manual, at the beginning of the Bible, it explains how to use it. And it says very clearly that in the absence of clear, I'm looking over there because this is where my monitor is, mm -hmm. in the absence of clear biological markers, it has not been to, possible to completely separate normal and pathological symptom expressions. We have a problem. It's very, it's very hard for us to, how do we know that a certain, a certain person is shy, which is a normal a personality mm -hmm. trait, or has social anxiety? How do we know? Where is the line? And uh, and this is from uh, something a bit more. Uh, the DSM is from uh, this I took from the the fifth edition, so it's from uh, 2013. But this is from 2019 from JAMA Psychiatry. JAMA, JAMA is the Journal of uh, American uh, Medical Association, and and JAMA Psychiatry is the flagship uh, the, uh, of the journals in uh, in psychiatry, and they say uh, very explicitly. That at this point of history, we do not have a physiological um, foundations that we can rely on to make diagnosis in in uh, psychiatry. And ADHD, we, people need to understand, um, ADHD is not that different than uh, schizophrenia or depression or, or uh, bipolar. It's all in the same in the same manual, the uh, uh, diagnostic statistical, statistical manual of psychiatric disorders, and. And this and this part I love I like the best. This is I took from uh, Ronald Pies. Doctor Ronald Pies is a is a well known uh, professor of psychiatry. He's the he's the um, emeritus um, editor of a, a of a Psychiatric Times. Psychiatric Times is a semi academic journal and it's very, very popular. And and he um, write this article for the second time trying to tell the readers that I, I'll read it in his words. As for the bogus chemical imbalance theory and its misattribution to the profession of psychiatry, 
it is time to drive the stake into its misbegotten heart. Now, people need to understand, Dr. Pais is not a, a psychiatric critic. I assume that he uh, prescribed uh, many psychiatric medications throughout his career. And yet, it is important to him to tell us that we do not, we cannot relate to psychiatric diagnosis uh, as if they, they originate from a biochemical imbalance in the brain. And, and he goes further and he tells you, and please stop, tell, stop saying that we psychiatrists believe that and that we uh, say that. Now we can argue if psychiatrists did that or not, but let's put this, um, this aside. Just, just we need to understand what is the premise of the, of the, of the, of the discussion here. The premise is, that in psychology and psychiatry, we do not have physiological evidence that we can say, oh, this person has it, has this, um, has this uh, something in his brain. No, it's not like that. It's, it's different. We need to start from the null hypothesis, like in all types of, all other fields in science. And the null hypothesis, the null hypothesis in our case is that children are normal until proven otherwise. If you want to say that a child has a disorder, it has a, a psychological or psychiatric disorder, and you need to reject that null hypothesis. How do you do that? You, we have we have four four um, principle four key criteria that we need to look at. So um, and so uh, the first is deviance, and the, um, that that this that the behavior that we look, we're looking at it has to be deviant. It, it, if uh, let me give you an example. My my father is a religious person, so when when we had a Shabbat dinner, so uh, he was inviting the angels to come and bless us in a Shabbat. Now, so he believes that uh, in angels. Now, one can say, "Oh, wait a minute, the angels do not exist. Maybe he has a disorder." But if many people believe in this, if many people have this belief, we cannot argue that this is a disorder. It's not deviant enough. So this is just a, uh, an exotic example to, to explain the the, um, the criterion of deviance. But and 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 uh, as far as I can tell, deviance is the, is the is the is an is a necessary criterion. Without it, we you cannot move on and 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 start exploring the rest the the three additional criteria, which are dysfunction that the, the child will have problems in every everyday um, functioning, not only in, in school, right? Also in in the, soccer field or or uh, getting dressed or, or taking a shower and um, and the this uh, we have also the criterion of danger the criteria of, of danger that it, it does not always exist but in in some in some uh, disorders for example in depression the person can be a, a um, can risk his own life so he may be at danger so danger is another criterion and the final the final criterion which is my my favorite is the distress um, distress criterion because in if it, it is important it, it like all other if like the three other uh, criteria dysfunction danger and, and distress uh, they not always they not always exist but distress you assume that if a person has a certain behavior that is deviant if if it doesn't bother him so maybe it's not a disorder mm -hmm. and but there but anyway we have a trade off between these criterions and the only way to de to decide if a certain behavior in in ADHD case is the 
um, distractions or the, the hyperactivity to the only way to decide if a certain behavior uh, is eligible to become a, a psychiatric diagnosis is to explore the existence of these for these criteria. And when I did it, I discovered that uh, the, um, that ADHD uh, does not meet these criteria. And uh, in our session, I will not be able to go over all the entire uh, the entire criteri criterions, but I do wish to to say a few words about the first criterion because this is really unbelievable. And it refers to something that you you talked about, uh, I think, before we started the recording. And um, uh, do you want me to stop here for a minute? Just to... No, no carry on. Okay. okay. So, so the... Um, the first criterion, the criterion of deviance, which I think that this, this is a necessary criterion, without it, you cannot move on. The first criterion should be very easy to examine because you need to ask only two questions. Um, what is the rates of ADHD? And um, do these rates uh, deviate from the normal, from the, from the, from the um, normal distribution? So, and th so these are the questions. And in science, usually when we think of a, uh, we think of what what can be a considered deviant, we look at the uh, extreme ends of the of the uh, normal distribution. So, uh, for example, let's let's take um, um, IQ levels. So, if if you are located at this end, and uh, so you're uh, two two standard deviations uh, above the mean, then you are a Part of the two and a half percent very intelligent persons, and you you might become you might be considered a genius. And at the other side, if if you are located here, you might be considered a, a person who suffers from um, uh, from a an intelligent um, mental deficiency. Yes, I I lost the word for a second. So, um. Uh, yes, intellectual disability. So, um, but but you know what? Even intellectual disability, it's not enough to be here, because we don't have a two and a half percent of the people who who suffer from intel uh, from uh, from intellectual disability. We have less. We have only one percent. And why is that? Because and even less if you consider uh, severe cases of uh, intellectual disability. And why is that? Because I, as I mentioned before, we, the first criterion is not enough. You need additional criteria. So, so one when we look at this normal distribution, let's go back to ADHD. If you look at the DSM, the DSM, the, the current edition will tell you that ADHD occurs in most cultures in about 5% of children. And by the way, it drops to 2.5% of adults. This is another validity issue. I will not touch it here. because, it, But... So 5%, in my opinion, is already very, very high, but it does not stop here. It, it started uh, when, you, when you studied medicine, right, in, in the 1980. It started when the, when the DSM first presented, first presented ADHD. That was the first time the ADHD appeared in the DSM with a focus on, uh, on attention. Before that, there were other uh, incarnations of uh, ADHD, but the, but... But the, the focus on, on, on attention, on, inatten on inattention, uh, only arrived to our life in, in 1980. And back then, the, the DSM ruled that the disorder is common, 
and it may occur in as many as 3%. And 3% is a lot, mm -hmm. considering the, the normal distribution I showed before. And by the way, here they had this problem uh, that the disorder is 10 times more common in boys than in girls. This is right. really amazing how they, how they dismiss this problem. Because if you think of ADHD as a neurogenetic deficit, remember ADHD, in order to diagnose it, you need to make sure that there, there is evidence that the child was uh, arrived to this world with this, with this deficit. The ADHD cannot be environmental. This is the conceptualization of ADHD. The, the, the biomedical, at least, the biomedical conceptualization of ADHD. We know today that uh, screens and, and sugar and all kinds of environmental things affect our attention. And also other stuff, if your parents get divorced or, or, or you're just in love, everything, many things affect our attention. But ADHD in its, in its core, it's something that you, that it's genetic. You come to the world with this deficit. So how come uh, um, boys are 10 times more in, vulnerable to this uh, brain deficit? But let's put this uh, validity issue aside and go back to the rates of the disorder. So we, we are talking about 3% back in the 80s but then suddenly in 2011 the cdc publishes a, a data and the data talks about uh, tell tell that we have 11 percent of children adolescents who are diagnosed with adhd adhd increased by 42 percent according to this article and then in 2016 if you look at a uh, at, at a children that are 12 years old you see that they have boys who are 12 years old, they will have 20% ADHD. This is really unbelievable. When one in five children are diagnosed with this uh, neurogenetic uh, disorder. And this, uh, and now we come to, to our times, 2021. I conducted my own study on this matter. And in Israel, we are the Ritalin champions. We have a, over than 20% um, ADHD, uh, about 23% to be more accurate. And if you don't trust me because I'm a known ADHD critic, I also brought you um, um, data from an article that was published in, in, in 2020. Uh, and this study relied on solid medical records. It's not even self-report. And th this study in Israel found between 28 and, and 18%, between 18 and 28% um, medical records of ADHD. This is really a, um, unbelievable or really, one can never say now that ADHD uh, meets the criterion of the, of the deviance criterion. It's just, it doesn't make sense. No, I agree. I agree. Just let me wrap up this issue of, of a, of a deviance, and then I'll then I'll stop talking because I think I talk too much. No, no, you don't talk too much at all. Okay, so here um, we have a very interesting case of a, I, I call it a, in the book an either either way dilemma. Either way, if the if the DSM is wrong, and we do not have five percent of ADHD, we actually have twenty percent of ADHD. That what can explain this? Uh, evolutionary miracle what happened what do they put in their water that now we have one in five of children uh, that they have this diagnosis 
and and if the DSM is correct and we do have about five percent ADHD then we have 15 percent of children that are diagnosed and without that these should not be diagnosed that the yeah, diagnosis or, or is yeah, at least three quarters of them yeah exactly now if you ask physicians and and there is research about that in Israel if physicians experts in ADHD were asked do you think that there is over diagnosis over diagnosis problem in ADHD they all say yes they don't they, they don't they they're not aware of the numbers that I bring in the book so they don't know how uh, how wide is this problem so so everybody agree that we have an over diagnosis problem but Think about it. When the overdiagnosis problem is three times higher than the true diagnosis, then we have a problem in the essence of the in the in the very definition of the of the disorder, right? Because doctors are most of them are good people. They try to to give the best diagnosis that they can. Why right. do they make so many mistakes? It's right. not their fault. It's the problem relies within the the definition of the diagnosis. Yeah, and this is the only one one validity issue that I discuss in my book. So I'm, I'm going to interject just for a second because you, you've you've made a lot of ideas bubble up in my head. And my own psychiatric problems that I, <laughs> I like to let some of those out. Uh, so I apologize, but I was thinking about something completely different. I had an email exchange with a friend of mine, um, maybe more like a friend of me, um, and we were talking about a t- totally different topic. But I, I was looking at an article from the Lancet uh, today and. I'm just going to show it here, um, and this is, is I, I, this, these are my words, but the graphs from the Lancet very recently about uh, police uh, violent interactions with the police, um, and so I interposed these uh, two charts. One is for women; it was on top, but I just put it on on on, on this other one. So females over here on the bottom. So yeah. interactions that that end in violence and mortality with the police. It's it's mostly. Whoops, sorry about that. It's mostly guys. Um, it's like 98% men, very rarely female. And so why is that? It's mostly certain, you know, kind of age group. You get this, oops, I, I keep touching something. It, you get the Gaussian curve, basically. So um, what is it? is it? Is it that police like to, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, get get at men only? They only want to hit, hit men? Well, there's got to be something else happening. It's maybe men are more violent than women, and they start interacting differently. And so I think this gets to the key point where you mentioned that ADHD is 10 times more frequent in men. So I, I was thinking about this for a long time. I've been thinking about this topic. So I'm kind of glad you came along. But, you know, the ideal game for, for girls, young girls, tends to be, you know, something community. So like, you know, they, they have, they'll, they'll have a tea party, a pretend get together, and they're all social, they're drinking tea, and they're, they're conversing and fixing things, whatever. Boys play, we, we call it king of the hill, you know, where, where the guy, one guy wants to be on top. This, this translates to our whole sports um, Matthew, we want we like to win. I mean, I'm sure women and girls like to win, but not the same way. Not the same way. So, so when you when you go to school, so school, maybe if you went back a few thousand years, boys and girls had different types of experience. They didn't necessarily have formalized school. Maybe the the boys went out and apprenticed with the men, learned to hunt, learned to carve, learned to cut, you know, a, a, an animal. Um, so forth. And, and, and women had different skills. I mean, women get pregnant, men don't. There's always going to be some, you know, biological necessity to, to divide the skills up a little bit because men don't have that downtime of being pregnant and everyone has to keep eating when somebody does get pregnant. So anyway, so there's probably a teleologic 
you know, evolutionary reason for this separation of interest. But when you head into school, so, you know, the boys are kind of always going to be more, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. They want to get out physically and do things. They want to act on things. They want to be aggressive. They want to put their will, exert their will. But school is really kind of the, the feminine ideal of everyone sitting in accord, quietly, conversing, having turns, taking your turn. And and so to get to my point, I think there's there's um, kind of a, a form fitting process that goes on and the ones that don't fit the form. So if everyone has to kind of be inside, we get the cookies back in the cookie cutter, yeah, uh, yeah. there are going to be some who fit better and some that don't. And the boys are the ones that, that are not going to fit as easily into the category of wanting to sit politely, raise your hand, answer questions, learn, you know, and do, you know, you know, with a lather, rinse, repeat, do this over and over again. And, and so I think the reason you'll see more ADHD in, in boys is those are the boys who give the teachers trouble. The teachers in elementary schools, at least U.S., are almost all women. And I think, you know, they're going to see things as women. And there's going to be, you know, a way in which the boy way is not their way. And so, you know, anyway, I, that's kind of my discourse and my uh, digression. I apologize. But um, I think I think you see these huge numbers because it's easier for the teacher to try to do something. And that whether that something is, is actually accurate and apt and appropriate and efficacious is in a whole other story. But the, the fact of, 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 of channeling and funneling that child to have something done brings it to attention where they can't do the other things, which is to, you know, unlearn some of the behaviors or have that child be better parented at home or better prepared for school or have a different type of school or have a school that that attends to, you know, boys, you know, more natural kind of physical aggression. Sorry, I'm sorry about that. This is beautiful. And uh, um, in my book, first of all, um, one of the, uh, the people who uh, endorsed the book is Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman uh, is an American public intellectual, and he authored the book ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World. And this corresponds with what you said before. And uh, and, I, and I just want to mention another thing that uh, you, remind me, you reminded me of a, fan, a fantastic um, um, series of studies that were published in Science. And, uh, and these studies were on, uh, they took people and they asked them to uh, to sit quietly and for 15 minutes. That's all, without any without doing nothing, without their telephone, without anything. And uh, and there was a very av aversive. It was experienced as a very aversive um, uh, event for most for most of the participants. And uh, and men, as uh, opposed to women, men were willing to press a, um, a button and they gave, they gave them a, an electric shock just to have something to, to be busy with. And this is an amazing, the, 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 the experience of boredom or, or what they call it in the, in the article, they call it the disengaged mind. It's a, such an aversive experience for, for, human, for humans in general and for boys in particular. And so I tend to agree, and also to yeah. to see your your um, your um, more historical evolutionary uh, perspective um, on this matter. Yeah. So I'm just going to mention one other thing that yes. you know boys boys and girls act out differently. Not, not only do they act differently, but they act out differently. So I, I'm a primary care physician, but I've seen my share of you know psychological and psychiatric issues over the time because I, I deal with humans, <laughs> and uh, humans have those things, but. You know, there's a thing of, of suicide. So when men 
um, try suicide, they, they succeed. Uh, when yeah. women try suicide, um, about 95% of the time, I think it is, don't quote me, but right, you know, some almost universal time women try suicide, they don't succeed. Is it why is that? Is men just know how to do it better? No. Women trying suicide is, is a completely different thing. It's it's a call for help. When men want to try suicides because they want to kill themselves. And so they have different intentions and they act differently. This is, you know, one aspect I had a really hard time convincing kind of a psychologically medically uh, minded friend of mine, these are totally different things. It's not the same thing when men and women, you know, try suicide. And, you know- But we, something and, interesting happened in ADHD. It started as a, as a boy's condition, as we saw in the first, in the DSM, uh, in the third edition of the DSM. But then the numbers started to even out. And I think that uh, without, I, I don't want to sound a, like a conspiracy theory, but but they needed to to sell drugs. So they were looking for other markets. And now uh, they started to, to um, diagnose girls more and more. But look what happened, very interesting. Another unbelievable validity problem that you take a, a child, an ADHD child with the H, right? With a hyperactivity, mm -hmm. like my son, very energetic, so, uh, curious and, 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 and physical. And you take, uh, a quiet and dreamy girl who sits in the back of the class and, and drawing things. And they both have the same neurogenetic problem, one with H and one with other, and they will both receive the same treatment. This is the, this is the treatment of choice, right? The, the, um, the, um, the treatment for ADHD is not, a, it's not like one out of several treatments that the physicians can give. This is the treatment of choice. The, the, the guidelines that the physicians receive, they tell them, you need to prescribe these stimulant medications. Mm -hmm. And maybe if, if we meet in, uh, for a second session, right, we can dedicate the, our session, second session to the, to the medications for ADHD. Today, yeah. we, discussed, we mainly discussed the, the validity of the, of the disorder itself. So, um, so and, and now I see that uh, aside from girls, they try to bring down the, the age of the, of the diagnosis to, to uh, diagnose the very small kids, very small children in kindergarten. Yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it's an unavoidable, again, I, I'm not a conspiracy guy, but I, I do observe things. You know, conspiracy, the word means to breathe together. And so conspiracy, and we're all breathing the same air and we're all in the same place. And these, these trends happen in, in societies that do this. Now, I think if you look across societies, you're gonna find vastly different numbers of cases, as it were. Uh, when I, back again, in the dark ages, when I was in medical school, uh, one professor, epidemiologic, whatever, he was talking about the diagnosis of back pain, which is hugely common in the United States, perhaps the first, second most common diagnosis. And the, you know, the largest cause of intermittent disability in the United States is back pain. There's all kinds of treatment, chiropractors. Anyway, there's a huge industry from car accidents and this and that around back pain. And he was mentioning, I think someplace in East Africa, it might have been Uganda at the time in the 1980s, that they didn't really have this diagnosis show up because they didn't have a, a framework for which people would have workman's compensation, from which they'd get paid for not working. They only got paid if they worked. And so they either had or didn't have back pain, but it, it, was, it was neither here nor there because nobody complained about it because it didn't do anything. There was no point to complaining about it because they had to go to work if they wanted to eat. If they didn't want to eat, they stopped working. If they stopped working and stopped eating, then they didn't have any problems at all because they stopped living. And so a lot of these things are conditional based on what the situation is. And there are ways of monetizing a problem 
you know, I grew up in an age where there were zero chiro chiropractors around and we had fault insurance. They invented no fault insurance, which meant that every party in an accident could get reimbursed. And all of a sudden chiropractic took off. And, and I want to get into the, all those details, but you know, there are aspects of medical care which fill a void and a need. And some of that's real and some of that's applied. And once it's applied long enough, people think it's real. Um, so I think that we have go, we go through phases in our treatment where, you know, the, the treatments sometimes start to become, you know, they go in search of a problem. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, I think we can all make analogies to certain other examples um, that we've come across. No, but it's really, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, it's really refreshing for me to hear, um, to hear someone who has this um, holistic view of medicine. So you can bring examples from other, from other fields. It's very, very interesting to me. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I have to say, you know, I'm not mainstream medicine. I, I'm, I'm primary care and I, I had my own practice for about 30 years. But, you know, I was a little bit, um, you know, I'm an outlier in a lot of different aspects. I treated narcotic um, addiction in my office for about 10 years, and I, I was treating with Suboxone to sobriety. And I don't, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> we'll wait to our third session. Uh, we'll talk about this one. But, you know, my basic tenet was that addiction is not a disease. I mean, narcotic addiction. I, I, I think it's a trauma. I think it's sad. I think it's severe. I think it can kill you. You know, like breaking your hip is a trauma and it can kill you. You might, may never walk the same again. It can be, you know, severely debilitating or deadly. But that doesn't mean it's a disease in and of itself. It's something that came from something that you, happened to you. It could be you have bad balance. It could be you got hit by a car. It could be your fault. It could might not be your fault. But but narcotic addiction is not a long-term illness, just like ADD or ADHD is not necessarily a long-term historic illness. I think there are behavioral aspects about people which might lend them to having this diagnosis and or having narcotic addiction. I think there, there are issues in their lives. There are, there are personal traumas. There are all kinds of things. You know, too too long and lengthy. That would be 15 sessions in order to try to you know parse and separate those. But you know, the human experience is varied, and and I think over time people you know deal with their problems or they don't deal with their problems. But sometimes to label one of these things as a disease, that's you know people we think we're helping people, but then oftentimes we're helping ourselves as treating physicians, psychologists, and so forth. Especially when you talk about young children who are still developing and. And the same functioning, some functions that are are, are said to be uh, impaired in ADHD, they're still developing. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, my, so I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna cut it, cut your son's young still, but my my older son's 31 years old, and so I kept saying no, no, no. We're just gonna, you know, we're gonna wait and see how this goes. I'll give you one really. It's it's not quite related, but almost related. So he was a big kid, and he was uh, kind of a head for. He was at this Montessori school. And he was in with kids of different ages. So he got in there like almost four years old, but he was bigger than all the other kids. And one point, the teacher, this is kind of a cute story. Um, the teacher came to me and said, oh, we, we want to send him to speech therapy. I said, why is that? Well, because he says Lello instead of yellow. I said, okay, well, uh, you know, I think his major speech problem is that he's too tall. And she looked at me. She, she's like, you know, this guy's a moron. So she repeated the whole thing. She said, no, no. He's got a speech problem. I said, no, I get it. I, I think his speech problem is that he's too tall. And she's like dumbfounded. I said, well, let me explain. Okay, how old is he? How old is he? She's like, I don't know, six, five? Yeah. I said, no, he just turned four. It's like, oh, my God, he just turned four? He's so tall for his age. I'm like, <laughs> well, there you have it. Anyway, my, my point is 
he no, grew it's into, a great story. He grew into. So you give me no. permission to use this story. It's a really a great Absolutely. story. So when he was five, he spoke like a five-year-old. When he was six, he spoke like a six-year-old. Maybe he wasn't as good as some of the other six-year-olds. I get it. Okay, maybe he had his own issues. I, I don't know how well he said yellow versus some other five-year-old. But he didn't say it when he was four. He didn't say as, as good as a six-year-old. And that's where her met mindset was. That was her expectation level, what he should be. So a lot of times you're working against the expectation level of the teacher, and the teacher's natural tendency is to offload it. I've got an issue. I got, I got to offload. I got to do something about this. And that's this happens in medicine right now. Everyone wants to offload something so we don't have to think about it. Anyway, yeah. so. I'll, I'll cut to the to answer the question about my son is that we wound up doing other accommodations. He couldn't sit and write. He could not sit and write. And we didn't have him sit. We'd go for a walk. I'd, I'd take him out. We'd run. We'd throw a ball, whatever. And on the way back home, I'd have the microphone. And I'd say, so, Sam, what about that paper on, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln? What, what do you think about Abraham? Well, you know, he talked, he say, we read this book and then I think Abraham, whatever, I don't know what the topic was. He would go rattle on. I had it all recorded. I would transcribe, which is, it was harder work then. Oh. I transcribe it and it was only his work. And I put it in front of him and we had computers. I put it in front of him and then he would play with it. He'd, he'd put the words around, he'd have his report. And that was it. It's not like he couldn't know what Abraham Lincoln was. Not that he couldn't think of it. It's not that he wasn't smart enough. I mean, I'm not saying he's the smartest or the dumbest. He was, you know, but but he but his the problem he had was sitting down in front of a white screen or white piece of paper and sitting and doing nothing and having to think of something. That was his problem. And so you can categorize or qualify that as an illness. I don't think it's an illness. I think it's a combination. We we in private email, I, I sent you one other point, which is I, I watch American football. Um and and even amongst that, I mean, they're all football players. They're all, you know, aggressive and strong and all that kind of stuff. But even amongst that group, there are some people who are going to be quarterback and some people who are never going to be quarterback. There's some people who are really good at defense, which is more of a reactive thing you have to see and, and act quickly. Those might be your ADHD people. It's not that they're not smart, but their instincts are, are direct. Again, getting back to your, your hunter-farmer analogy. And so the guys that might wound up playing football, and he they put them on offense, for whatever reason, he was, you know, whatever. He liked learning to play, having all advance. But they're all different cate cate categories and characteristics. Some people don't work out in certain positions. Not doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they may not have found the right fit for their capabilities. And I think the, the real issue with schooling is that, that it's kind of gone diverged from finding those capabilities within people to assuming that everyone has to become an accountant or everyone has to become a professor, all that kind of stuff. And we have different expectations than what really people necessarily are. are we are ignore the multiple intelligence that we as children have and human beings have. Yeah. So so we're heading towards the end of the hour. And I'd like to give you uh, the last word, and then I'm going to have one last last word. So maybe um, sum up this session. If we if I can invite you back again, I'd love to have you. Um, but you don't have to say yes yet. But why don't you in maybe two minutes summarize where you are, what your thoughts are, and what's your advice for for parents and people. Um. It's a good question. I'll, I'll just sum, summarize the um, my um, the, the, our conversation today and say that uh, um, my journey um, in this field, trying to um, at least present the other side that the ADHD may not be an illness and that maybe it's not the best way to treat it with or to or to give children with such powerful medications. This journey was a uh, was really not easy. I'm, I'm happy that I did it. 
but uh, but I see how hard is it to um to um to sell it to to mm -hmm. tell people listen just read it just be <laughs> so so when you when you when you contacted me and you suggested that I'll, I'll come to your show I I was really glad because I'm I'm happy to talk about it and I really wish people will read the book because it's not because I wrote it because it's really really an important piece that it uh, I I. I gathered as much evidence as I, as I could, and I structured it very, very nicely to and very elegant. And, and although it's a scientific book, I always had a parents on my mind. I dedicate this book to parents. I think that the parents are the are the he of the heroes of this tragic history, and I really wish they will read it. Well, fair enough. So, so I, I, here's, here's a, your book. I'm just going to, you know, briefly scroll through some of these things. I'll put them, you know, on the comments section. Uh, but, uh, you know, here, here's some of uh, your work. Here's, I guess, the book again. Um, um, and what else? Uh, this is another one of your pieces here. Um, I'm going to just put links to them. This is uh, uh, from excerpts from your book. Uh, here's an interview uh, uh, in from Israel. Um, the, the YouTube's actually... In a different uh, in Hebrew, so the people are not going to understand it. Right. Uh, here's a good story from Mad in America, uh, the story of uh, Dr. Ophir and ADHD. Uh, I'll put links to this. You wrote your own article in Brownstone. Uh, are we medicating millions of ADHD children without um, without scientific justification? Um, the, the, your viewers should should know that I write much better than I talk. <laughs> no, no, you do you did fine. I, you do much better than we can do conversely. Um, and so I'm going to end. Uh, uh, with my own um, uh, shameless self-promotion, um, we have some similar similarities. I, I, I'll maybe get into this I later. I that. Beautiful. But, but I, have a, I, I have a book here, Overturning Zika, The Pandemic That Never Was. This was a big deal in 2015-16 Brazil and a lot of large other parts of the tropical world. And women are still being told uh, to stay indoors if they're pregnant or put slather on insect repellents or in, for fear of uh, microcephaly happening to their babies. Um, but it never really necessarily happened in the first place. It didn't happen in the second year in 2016 in Brazil. Nobody's come out to explain why uh, we're going along with this. This, this hasn't been monetized yet. Um, and uh, there's a Zika vaccine around the corner. And I'm sure, um, you know, women are going to be told to take it. Um, and then, then they're going to announce it disappeared. But it's been gone for almost a decade. So here's uh, my book. You can purchase it on Amazon. There's my self-portrait. Uh, this is me when I wake up in the morning, um, and uh, there you have it. So um, anyway, so I'm going to leave it there. Uh, we're heading around almost an hour. Uh, thank you so much. If you'd like uh, Yaakov uh, to come back on, uh, <laughs> yell and scream, clap, let us know. Please uh, share this widely. Um, I'm going to put it up on as many uh, social media places I can, and uh, I look forward to having you back again. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Randy. All right, you can hang around. We'll chat for a second. We're going to say goodbye to everybody else. Thank you.